You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to the Beltway Briefing this week. We have lost our fearless leader again this week. Howard Schweitzer is on assignment, uh, as is Patrick Martin. But we are very lucky to have with us Mark Alderman, Rodney Davis, and Caitlin Martin, along with myself, Towner French, here for the for the podcast this week. Mark, we're just going to throw it to you real quick. We had some good economic data this week. President Biden's got to be feeling pretty good about that as the uh, re-election effort starts to, to really get underway. And But I think the question is, is the American public hearing about this? Are they feeling that message right now that the White House is trying to deliver on Bidenomics? And I don't even know how to say that. Uh, it's it, t- Teach me first to say Bidenomics. That's how the president says it. So there you we'll, go. it's his name. We'll let him tell us how to pronounce it. And I think it's interesting. I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. The answer to your question is the American public hearing, or I would say feeling the good news, is not enough. And I don't know whether it's the storytelling on the part of the Biden team, uh, starting with the president, or whether it's just a further commentary, further example of the division in the country where the politics uh, as the backstory are, are the noise and the signal gets lost. But as a matter of economic data, things are pretty damn good. Inflation is down, it's not gone, and it'll be back. It's not linear. But annual rate is within a point of the target the Fed set when the number was nine a year ago. So that is good economic news. Unemployment remains historically low. Anybody who wants a job can get one. The markets are responding to the good economic data. And yet there seems to be a dissatisfaction at large in the land with the direction that we're headed. And I think the challenge for the president in political terms as the reelect gets underway is to bring together the facts and the feeling and get people believing that he's leading us in the right direction because he's got the data to back it up. Now, I haven't looked. It's it's 946. I've been preparing for the podcast. Uh, I hope the markets aren't making a liar of me as we speak. <laughs> but I've been a pretty good couple of days. There you go. And Rodney, you're uh, not uh, locked up in the Northeast in full em- uh, employment mode. You're in America's heartland. What are they saying? Uh, what are they saying there? Same thing that Mark's saying or are they they saying something different? Oh, look, I'm sitting here in our Chicago office right now. I look out my window and I see apartment building after apartment building, uh, and you see rents that are sky high. Uh, The interest rates that many young families are looking at to be able to afford to borrow for their first home are what Mark and I remember as good deals not too long ago. Right, right. We have an entire generation that's never seen it. Better than my first mortgage. I got my first mortgage in 1995. 
and I was ecstatic to get a deal at 8.875 to borrow $60,000. But my payments at that time were up over $750 a month for $60,000 because of that interest rate. So good news economically, yes. I think, though, this is a time bomb if we don't see wages continue to rise, if we don't incentivize workforce investment. And I think it's a terrible mistake that Joe Biden wants America to remember the term Bidenomics, because I know what I used to do when my opponents would put out their own slogan. By the end of the campaign, that slogan would be wrapped around their neck and strung tightly until I killed them on election night. Yeah. Caitlin, is it going to be Bidenomics uh, negative or is it going to be sort of like uh, Obamacare that President Obama tried to turn into a positive on the uh, health message? Is it is it going in the wrong direction or the right direction? We have a lot of time before Election Day. That's yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's a lot of time. And I, I completely agree with Rodney. I think they might uh, rue the day they came up with that cashy tagline, which, oh, by the way, came, you know, in the middle of his first term. It's like they woke up one day and decided, oh, this is a good idea. I mean, and it had started in the middle of a pretty uh, challenging economic moment. Yeah, I think I think to a certain extent, you know, I understand where the White House is going with this. If you're going to take all the responsibility for the downturn, you want to take responsibility for, you know, the comeback, uh, if you will. And that's been sort of Biden's message the entire time he's been in office in the Senate, uh, in the in the as vice president. And then now as president is he's always sort of the comeback kid a little bit in that regard and working class and fighting and, you know, grinding away. And so I, I see how they wanted to do it. I was mystified a little bit uh, about the rollout because it happened in a not very well publicized speech in the middle of a week in Detroit, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. And it just didn't seem like there was a drive behind it that brought in surrogates, that brought in others. Cabinet secretaries didn't go out into the field and start talking about Bidenomics. It didn't happen on the back end of a State of the Union. And, and you know, there was notoriety out of it. So that's I, I think that would be my one criticism. I don't disagree that the economic numbers are looking a bit better. That being said, I don't know that people are necessarily instantly feeling that inflation number go down just yet. And so maybe this is a long-term setup, Mark, for for yeah. the hope that there will be, you know, that that feeling will happen. Well, it's, as Caitlin says, a lot of time, too much time, frankly, if you're a, a Democrat uh, until the election. We, we're, we're ready to run tomorrow. But a long time until the election, and it's it's directional. I I like the direction we're headed. I don't think the polling says the rest of the country does, but that's going to be the president's challenge. He's, you guys know that I believe he's done a, a darn good job of actually governing the country. He is not a great storyteller. He's no Rodney Davis on the campaign trail. <laughs> Well, it didn't serve Rodney very good, so I wouldn't. (laughs) Well, that's why I set the bar low, and he didn't even get over that. (laughs) You know, uh, it served me well for 10 years in a competitive district, and I realized I'm clearly not Republican enough for primary voters in 2022 (laughs) in certain rural parts of the state. Which, which, Which brings us to my favorite topic of the summer, which is the Freedom Caucus, Tanner. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was just going to interject. I never paid more than five and a quarter in interest on a on a place that I've owned. And, you know, at 2.5 right now, I can't move. I'm locked in. Like I, my mortgage will double if well, I try to the, move. Not to go down the rabbit hole of the housing market, which I think is the weak point in the yes. economic data. Rodney, I'm not letting you go to Congress yet. Right. We haven't finished this topic yet. Anybody, anybody in any buyer in the housing market is not thinking that Bidenomics is working for for him or her. But the um, there are no sellers. You can, any, everybody's house is worth a ridiculous amount of money, but but you can't move. You can't move. And it's interesting, you know, in, in our little area up in Northwest DC, we've actually had four houses go on the market uh, in the last uh, two weeks. And it's, it's sort of a, a surge of houses. I, I don't know what's caused it per se, other than, you know, a lot of folks weren't selling when they were getting cheap interest rates and people had moved uh, just before, or just at the beginning of the pandemic uh, up to our area. And so uh, the interesting thing for me is now the housing prices are so much higher higher, but coupled with the additional interest rate, yep. it is making those properties feel unattain- unattainable for, for families, uh, quite yeah. frankly. And, and uh, you know, I know if we hadn't moved six years ago to the neighborhood I live in, we could not afford to move into the neighborhood I live in today. And that's that's astounding. Well, one, yeah. thing to add, one thing to add to what you just mentioned, what Mark just mentioned, um, you're right. Um, you're talking about homeowners and future homeowners and how this is impacting them. But let's not underestimate the lack of housing stock and what that, and the cost of housing stock that's available, what that means to rental prices. Now, my daughter and her husband are here in Chicago. They're living in the same apartment complex that they were in before they got married. And in the end, they looked around to try and move uh, outside of that complex and realize that the deal they signed during COVID that was a great deal was the most affordable by far to rent a one-bedroom. Rental units for one-bedroom apartments in the city of Chicago right now, which I guarantee is comparable to many major cities, is $4,000 a month. How is that affordable for people coming out on their own in their first job? It's not. That's where Bidenomics runs a terrible risk of being that 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 python that wraps around its neck because it's uncontrolled. The economy for a candidate is uncontrolled, more uncontrollable than mission accomplished for George W. Bush. Yep. You know, the one thing, and I'm going to do a little bit more on this for future podcasts because I'm I'm doing as much research as I can in the short term. But I, you know, I recall the high inflation days of the 70s uh, and into the 80s, where, in fact, the, the Federal Reserve took their foot off of the gas pedal with regard to interest rates for a brief period of time, and it caused a more intractable situation. And so I think the the question here is, what does the Fed do? Do they start to ease in a in a expedited manner, uh, or do they keep the interest rates where they are and allow Biden, in my opinion, to essentially run for re-election against the Federal Reserve as a result? I don't know. I don't know. So maybe we'll leave it there. We'll go over to Congress now. We'll go talk free to Congress now. Downer on that issue. It's a much different American political system than it was in the '70s. And if you look back to the '70s, the sheer fact that Jimmy Carter and his administration. Uh, did not go after the Fed 
and watched those interest rates go uncontrollably high. I would say that had a tremendous impact on Reaganomics destroying him in the 1980 election. And I don't think the Fed is as detached from politics today and will be detached as much from the Biden administration. And therefore, you're not going to see the runaway interest rates go. It's going to be uh, fun uh, winter time, especially as uh, as we get out of the housing moving season uh, and and figure out what's going to happen with interest rates. We could have uh, some chaos in the housing front. So we shall see. Speaking of chaos. Speaking of chaos. <laughs> yes, indeed, Mark. We will get to the Freedom Caucus now, I promise. Yeah. I just want to listen. I, I, I'm All right. Smiling. You know, it's not a do. video, but the audience should know I'm smiling as you three talk about the Freedom Caucus. Ear to ear smile. It is, uh, this is, Mark's just been dying to talk about so the Freedom Mark, Caucus. Your, your favorite member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has been expelled from the House Freedom Caucus. She uh, is. Caitlin, that made my news feed. That did show up <laughs> on my side of the aisle. <laughs> and Mark just contributed to her now. Right. Yeah. I don't believe in censorship. What is it? What are you Republicans doing? Gagging a member like that? Terrible. Terrible. It's a big tent party. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin, what happened this week? Chaos rained down <laughs> upon the house. Chaos. Yeah. I mean, look, I think uh, I was going to ask you and ask Rodney, yeah. is this another week where, you know, everyone's asking the question, can Speaker McCarthy keep the caucus together? We had, you know, another late night rules committee blow up over a slate of pretty controversial amendments to the National Defense Reauthorization Act, which is usually a very bipartisan um, piece of legislation that is a must pass funding for the troops, salary increases for the troops. There are some conversations being had that might need to be had given some of what the Defense Department is spending taxpayer dollars on. And I hear that and, and, and you know, understand that. But it was another kind of late night blow up. However, as of today, it does look like they are moving forward with continuing to vote on some of these amendments. And let's let's hear what uh, what Rodney has to think. I'm wondering if he's if he's if this is one of those weeks where he's missing yeah. being a member. He's really glad he's with us <laughs> here on the outside. What are the members saying, Rodney? Look, I I love my time as a member of Congress and and things like this, large pieces of legislation like this being hijacked by a certain segment in our conference. I would have loved to have seen the back and forth and figured out how we could influence it on behalf of what my constituents wanted. Uh, but there is no rhyme or reason to many of my former colleagues and what they're asking for, other than uh, they believe that's going to raise their own personal profile, or they believe it's going to get them that social media high with clicks and interviews on conservative media outlets, et cetera. This is real bullets we're talking about, pardon the pun because we're talking about the NDAA, National Defense Reauthorization. Um, but Kevin had no choice. Uh, when you have a small group that's enough, because we only have a five-seat majority, to disrupt the process of the NDAA, the goal, and I agree that Kevin is doing what he has to do, the goal is to get the bill out of the House so you can go to conference committee with the Senate. And then come back and expect many of those Freedom Caucus members to start screaming and yelling since every single one of their demands is not met. And they would have added 15 more demands in conference committee too that they they and their geniuses would have thought of. But this is what's going to happen. And frankly, this is what Nancy Pelosi had to deal with behind closed doors, which is why most major pieces of legislation, not all, I'll give them credit for that, 
Most were done over the last two Congresses on a very partisan level, so much so that I was able to gleefully stand on the floor and debate them and talk about how partisan they were in controlling the implementation, controlling the creation, the legislative process and the committees, and then also on the floor, and then gleefully vote no against those partisan proposals, which my Democratic colleagues and former Democratic colleagues are going to do today on NDAA. So, Mark, I'm going to take a very controversial position. I support the Freedom Caucus and what they did this week, and I will tell you why. Uh, because Can I interrupt you just to sure. make sure our listeners actually know what they did? Yeah, absolutely. Just have an alert. Have an alert. We'll just do a breakdown. So so Defense Authorization Act is the largest bill that is considered uh, by Congress on an annual basis. And when I say annual, it has been passed on an annual basis for 62 years running now, every single year. It is There was one year under Trump where we thought maybe, maybe it won't happen this year. We're going to break the streak. Uh, and that was going to be the 60th year. But in fact, it did get passed and and Trump finally signed it and it moved on. So 62 years running now, I believe it is, we have passed the defense authorization bill. It is a sweeping bill. It obviously authorizes not only the entire spending of the Pentagon, which is up over $800 billion on an annual basis now, uh, but it also authorizes, uh, in many cases, a huge chunk of the intelligence community's budget. Uh, it can sometimes carry other authorizations like the State Department or the Coast Guard or other things things that Congress considers. So we're talking about a massive piece of legislation, and it usually is a highly vetted, amended piece of legislation. The Armed Services Committees in both the House and Senate have very detailed, longstanding amendment uh, processes in place to consider, in some cases this year, especially in the House, 1,300 amendments were considered in committee alone, and then another 1,502, 1502 amendments were introduced by members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and submitted to the Rules Committee for consideration uh, that they would like to have it considered on the on the House floor. And so it is a it is a massive policy bill. It contains no germaneness test. It is one of the only bills in the House of Representatives that has no effective germaneness because it is so expansive. It cannot exclude anything under the parliamentarian's viewpoint. And Which so tried so hard to get safe banking to ride on at last Congress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, safe banking's been adopted. You name it. I don't care if it's health, housing, financial services, you name it. Uh, we do most of our health research through the Pentagon right now. More of it happens through the Pentagon than happens through uh, the NSF or HHS or anything along those lines. So uh, just the sheer weight of the bill is, is something that's relatively unmanageable. This year, however, Kevin McCarthy said, look, we had, I think the final vote in the House committee was 58 to 1 with one Democrat opposing. So it was a highly bipartisan vote, but they ignored and 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 moved past on many different controversial issues to have that strong of a, a bipartisan vote in the committee. When they got to the floor, uh, like I said, there were 1,502 amendments that were offered. Uh, House Republicans decided to allow 290 of those in the first tranche, and those were all non-controversial amendments. Uh, virtually all of them were voice voted in large on-block packages uh, through the course of the day on Wednesday uh, on the House floor. However, the Freedom Caucus wanted to have some of the hard debates. They wanted to debate Ukraine. There was 300 million for aid for Ukraine in the bill. 
there was not additional money to litigate the Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine in the legislation, but they still wanted, they thought this was the place to have that policy discussion. They wanted to talk about uh, COVID uh, still. They wanted to talk about service members that were discharged because they didn't get the vaccine. They wanted to talk about transgender issues. They wanted to talk about the abortion issue that uh, Tommy Tuberville slowed over in the Senate. Senator Tuberville has stopped all of the military promotions and Obviously, that is a increasingly noticeable and large story, even in uh, daily life. I think for a lot of people now know that that's going on. They wanted to have these these very divisive, quite frankly, and in many cases, I don't agree with the Freedom Caucus's stance on them, but they wanted to have these debates on the House floor via amendments that they had proposed. Basically, they Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries said, if we have these debates, it will not be a bipartisan bill going through the House. And we want to maintain a bipartisan bill. We want to maintain the focus on a 5.2% increase in pay for soldiers that's included in this bill uh, to combat some of the inflation. And we want to have this strong bipartisan vote coming out of the House, which they have been able to do uh, for many years running. The House has had a pretty robust mid-300 level members, both sides of the aisle, supporting the armed services uh, product uh, on an annual basis. The Freedom Caucus said, no, we're not going to support you not addressing these critical issues. And frankly, I don't have a problem with that. This is one of the few times that the Freedom Caucus has obstructed the House in order to actually debate something, whether or not you agree with the policy, at least debate something constructively on the House floor and have the House vote up or down on whether or not this should be a policy moving forward. And so that is the reason why I say that I don't necessarily oppose the Freedom Caucus in what they did this week. I don't necessarily agree with many of the issues that they brought up. But as a result of what they did, their obstruction in this case, the House was had to take up 80 new amendments through the course of the evening and afternoon yesterday in order to end this morning. They have a few uh, remaining before they, they leave town, but they had to take up 80 amendments. And those are very politically controversial amendments. The House ended up passing uh, narrowly an amendment to essentially support Senator Tuberville in opposing the DOD policy uh, on moving uh, soldiers, paying for for the travel of soldiers to obtain an abortion, uh, and that's the the underlying thing that Tuberville was has been trying to stop through the military promotion ban, essentially that he's put on or filibuster. Um, so you know, there's several uh, amendments that passed. There are a lot of amendments that failed and failed spectacularly. The House voted and on two amendments to overwhelmingly support what the United States and President Biden is doing in Ukraine. Uh, the House actually voted uh, with 360 votes, I believe, to say that President Biden did have a plan for Ukraine. And that included a heck of a lot of Republicans going down to the floor and speaking on that amendment in, in support of President Biden's actions in Ukraine. So there were good things that came out of this debate. There were some controversial things. And we're going to see what the final vote total is, but it's not going to be nearly as bipartisan as it as it has been in previous years. Um, but, you know, the, the bill is likely going to still be supported uh, by Republicans and a couple handfuls of Democrats still uh, would be my guess, just because of the military pay increase and, and things along those lines. But it's it's not going to be nearly as robust of a of a bipartisan vote going over to the Senate. But that said, that's why I say in this particular right. instance, it was actually whether or not you agree with their policy goals, it was constructed from a legislative standpoint. I am going to stop filibustering the podcast now and turn it over. 
And it goes to the Senate, you expect, with the Tuberville Amendment? Yes, but the Senate, in the way defense authorization works, the Senate considers their own bill from scratch. And so they are actually very likely on the Senate floor going to consider their own uh, defense authorization bill crafted by the Senate Armed Services Committee next week. uh, And then we'll seek to conference those two uh, packages together later on this fall. So the Senate's not going to nearly have, the Senate's going to be old school. They're probably not going to have very many controversial uh, issues going forward because uh, Leader Schumer has no problems sort of withstanding um, a cloture vote or a filibuster because there's enough support there to be able to do it. But meanwhile, no military promotions. Meanwhile, still no military promotions. Although this week, I do have to say, it's interesting. After saying no negotiation, no negotiation, Secretary Austin has had conversations with Senator Tuberville for the first time this week and reported that they were they were good conversations and they feel like uh, the dialogue is is starting to progress. So we've we've got past just like debt ceiling. We've gotten past the <laughs> we're not negotiating standpoint into, OK, we're finally negotiating. Rodney, would you have liked to have uh, voted on any of those amendments that the House had to do? I mean, some of those were very politically controversial. Oh, man. You know, by the time they get there, you know where you're going to be. And you also know, you know, which of your constituents those will placate. And then you just begin to message that vote to them and then know that you're going to take incoming on a wide variety of issues. But I, I do have to apologize to Evan, our most loyal listener. I did let him know that I was going to warn him before Tanner French went on a full rules nerd. <laughs> sorry. sorry. And I failed to do that before. I'm sorry. And no, I have to I, do that. I say I, I love it when Professor French appears on the podcast I and, do and educates us all. Well, we'll have we'll have Bob and Dennis put in some alarms uh, in the final edit, you know. Have uh, an alert. Yeah. Rules <laughs> nerd. Well, let, let me if I may pivot, because before we uh, run out of time, we can't let a podcast this political season end without two names at least being said. So we're going to let Caitlin do the Hunter Biden piece. And if need be, I'll do the Trump piece. But I know Rodney and, and Pounder are dying. So well, we were doing so well. Why do you got to bring that up? <laughs> Well, I, I parody for for our I'm listeners. Doing Howard's both sidesism. I'm going to be the globalist yes. this morning. Hunter Biden, Donald Trump. I have nothing more to say. For for our listeners, there is one topic that that Caitlin has really wanted to address, and that is the mystery uh, that is happening in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue this week. Caitlin, take it away. Well, look, I think as everyone on this podcast knows, we work with a lot. Uh, we work with the cannabis industry. And I am finding the irony this week of the fact that this White House and this administration, who has been pretty anti-cannabis, has fired staffers for former cannabis use, has employed drug testing for White House staff, has been such a stickler on the cannabis issue. Yet there's a little irony here. I don't know if folks saw the headlines. I think most of our listeners probably have. But um, right after the 4th of July um, holiday, Secret Service closed down, shut down, evacuated the White House because they found a bag of cocaine in the West Wing near, and I know we're all pretty familiar with this, near where when you walk into the, the West Wing, you put your phone in the little cubbies, 
almost right outside of the White House mess area, someone said there was a bag of cocaine there. And the White House has now decided, Secret Service has now decided, case closed. They can't figure it out. You're telling me this is the most sensitive area of the West Wing with security and cameras and Secret Service. And you're tell they they've fingerprint tested the bag. You are telling me they cannot no fingerprints. Where this bag of cocaine came from. I just I think, think it's really interesting that case closed. We're not going to solve the mystery. But yet there are former White House staffers who were fired for cannabis use. So well, you, you solved the mystery. White House mess. Every restaurant you've ever been to no, has had a bag of cocaine in it. It was it was near the cubbies where you put your phone outside. It migrated, migrated from them. This is not the heavily trafficked area where visitors, you know, that are there for July Fourth activities are. This is the West Wing. I just Boy, think Pounder, there's been some preparation that went into this commentary. Here. I want to see the tapes, though. I'm with Caitlin. Uh, you know, this is Nixon-esque. I want to see that. I want the tapes. Uh, they say we can't see on video anybody leaving this bag of cocaine. There's no fingerprints on the bag. So this is this is the biggest mystery I've heard of in forever. I mean, we took down Nixon with tapes for the love of God. There are cameras every square inch of that building. I, I find it hard to believe they don't know who could have possibly left it. But that being said, uh, the mystery persists, Caitlin. We will, we will not. Persists, and I'm not saying any names, but you know, there are lots of people <laughs> in right-wing news media that, that, that are. Rodney has some quick, names for you. <laughs> quick, quick comment. I just want a comparison as we transition into the other topic that Mark's going to bring up. Yeah. Imagine if this was the Trump White House. Yep. And imagine if one of the Trump kids might have had a problem with the same substance that was found and miraculously no one is being blamed. The news media would have called, they would have been had reporters plucking hairs off of Donald Trump Jr. to run drug tests on. Yep. They would have tried to create this scenario where he would have brought it in and tried to plant it on somebody. I mean, the, the difference is immense. And if anyone thinks there is no difference to what would have happened, they are completely biased. Let me say, this country worked really well through the 70s still uh, in many facets when everybody in the White House was doing cocaine. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, maybe it's maybe it's uh, make America great again. Maybe that's the uh, that's the answer. I don't know. That was well, I would just like to congratulate the Republicans on, on the podcast. Another great week for the party. Your leader's uh, position at the top of the pack was solidified by more criminal problems that arose during the week. So I, I look forward to your convention. It should be quite a celebration of uh, what, what, what number was he? 45, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, this is um, so this is a train wreck in, in pretty fast <laughs> motion, actually. Uh, it continues uh, very quickly. So, we still have time, we still have time. There's unfortunately a ton of it, and we're gonna have to, as a nation, we still, you know, have to remember that we have what 17 months left before this thing's finally decided, or, or 16 months. So, uh, everybody buckle up, uh, but. 
Thank you all very much. Appreciate the uh, discussion today. And we will welcome back uh, our, our colleagues for next week. Uh, but uh, I think you did a very good job, Mark, of uh, of blunting the Republicans on the I, on the One on three. So. Or, I like those odds. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds we, we good. Mark, Caitlin, good. Rodney, thank you so much. Everybody have a great day and uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.